Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about our culture of convention, ambition, competition, and normalcy. I've been thinking about our attitudes and approach to illness, and the resulting levels of acceptance and denial. I've been thinking about a nation overwrought with stress, insecurities, and fear. And mostly, I've been thinking about mental health, compassion, economics, and humanity. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Ron Powers. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic and Emmy Award-winning television commentator. He's written numerous books, the most recent entitled No One Cares About Crazy People, The Chaos and Heartbreak of Mental Health in America. He's a caring human, the husband of Honoré Fleming, and father of two magnificent sons, Kevin and Dean. Welcome, Mr. Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have read your book and a pleasure to have you on the show today. Ellie, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Both of your sons were afflicted with schizophrenia, and you lost your son Kevin to suicide prior to his 21st birthday. I usually give a brief synopsis of my guest stories, but in your case, I didn't feel I could do it justice, not not to the path you've been on. So I want to just dive in, and and your story will, will come from there. Let's start with your decision to write this book. You hadn't planned to write on the topic, and I know you battled with it quite a bit. I'm wondering what changed your mind. Well... It was a hard thing. I, I, you're right, Ellie. The first sentence in the book, um, in the preface, is this is the book that I promised myself I would never write and promised my wife as well. Uh, lots of reasons for that. We were caught completely flat-footed and off-guard when our younger son, Kevin, who was a week from his 21st birthday, um, committed suicide in our basement in uh, in July of 2005. Kevin had been a wonderfully talented guitarist. He'd graduated the Interlochen Academy and was in his first semester at the Berkeley School of Music. Uh, a delightful, sunny, happy kid. What, I'm, what I mean by all this is that there were no indications that Kevin was unhappy or alienated or depressed that he had been seized three years earlier uh, with uh, what was eventually diagnosed as schizophrenia. Um, Like so many families in this country, uh, we had no idea what to do. Well, we, of course, we, we got him into treatment and medication, but the disease, by the time we were aware enough to start getting him treated, it had penetrated deeply enough that uh, the voices in his head, which are a symptom, of course, of uh, psychosis, told him to hide the meds. Don't take them. You're fine. Everybody else is crazy. And Kevin, uh, who's a friendly kid, listened to the voices, and uh, within weeks after going off meds, uh, he took his life. You know, you say you were found flat-footed and unprepared, but I think... You know, it's it's heartbreaking and terrifying. And I, I thought a lot about that just from the title of your book. And I think, you know, I kept thinking, why? Why is it? And as I read through your book and through the history of our country and, and, and Western Europe and, and many other countries, our treatment of the mentally ill, and I thought, you know, is it we don't care? Is it that it's so terrifying and such an unsolvable problem at this point that people want to turn away? 
I think you put your, your finger on it, Ellie. Um, people are terrified by the idea of schizophrenia. They are terrified in the presence of people who are mentally ill. And I think um, this is a, a tragic overreaction, and it comes from centuries of myth and superstition and uh, an instinctual human uh, drive to 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 not to not deal with mental illness. People look at a, pardon my expression, crazy person. We'll talk about that term in a minute, and they see a version of themselves or a possible version of themselves. You know, the whole. I think I've come to think that the whole idea of demonic transformation, the vampire, the werewolf, um, Mister Hyde uh, emerging from Doctor Jekyll. I think all of these are not simply just made-up fantasies. They have their roots in um, what we see as a demonic transformation of a person in psychosis. So there's a lot of alienation, there's a lot of fear, and uh, it has succeeded in keeping this part of our population uh, permanently in the shadows. And one of the aims of my book is to sort of educate people uh, based on my own family experience and my own research into um, intervening in ways that can actually help bring the chronic mentally ill at least partway back to social functioning and a degree of peace. You will never be cured if you are afflicted with schizophrenia or bipolarity or schizoaffective disorder, because these are brain diseases. They're passed on through the genes from parent to child. And they, no cure as yet has been found, but we can help, uh, we, can, we can make things a lot less terrible than they are for the mentally ill, but we have to focus uh, intensely on the problem. You do a great job in your book of explaining in a very understandable way, but very in-depth um, approach, the history of mental illness and our definition of it and our treatment of it and our reaction to it. And I was going to talk about Jung a little bit later in his suggested link between creativity and mental illness, but let's talk about it a little bit here about his ideas about every individual, mentally healthy or not, and our shadow self and the rejection of that part of ourselves within an individual and then also within society. Yes. Um, we're talking about the fact that even mad people are individuals. Are, are, is that where we're going, L.A.? We are, I think, and the idea that... You know, we were taught, you mentioned the dissonance and the wanting to push away of this, yes. this negative element that we see in others and that we also, as Jung would say, exists in all of us, maybe to a lesser degree, but that in our society, historically, we have cut ourselves off from that within ourselves and also yeah. within, within someone else who we see as reflecting that back to us and maybe in the mentally ill in an exaggerated way. Yes, I, this takes us back to the first question you asked, I think, Ellie. Uh, why did you write this book? And I told you the reasons why, I, I, well, the reasons why I delayed writing it for more than 10 years after Kevin died. And his older brother, Dean, who is now 35, was afflicted. And luckily, Dean was pulled back from the brink by 
a fairly enlightened psychiatrist, very enlightened psychiatrist. So we've had it strike our family twice. The reason I didn't want to write it was because our family, my wife, Anna Ray, and son, Steve and Kevin, we were and are very close. I loved these kids dearly. didn't know where I stopped and they began. And I didn't want to exploit them. I didn't want to commodify them in a book. I didn't want to write a book of victimhood, I did, you know, or a poor me book. There were a lot. There are a lot of things that can go wrong when a writer addresses a topic like this. And I thought my first duty is to honor the sanctity of my sons and not exploit them. And then I assume that's why I held off. And if you know, we can talk about what changed my mind, uh, if you like. Let's talk just briefly about what changed your mind, because that's a huge step. I didn't even want to summarize your story because I didn't want to be disrespectful to any aspect of it. And so I can't imagine the struggle you went through deciding whether or not to write the book. Yes, well, um, about five years ago, I think, uh, Honoré and I were invited to a meeting, uh, a public hearing in the state capital in Vermont, Montpelier. The issue was whether it is permissible, whether it is constitutional for psychiatrists, paramedics to intervene in the, uh, an episode of psychosis when someone is really acting out quite extremely, uh, clearly in a state of madness, and administer soothing medications and perhaps institutionalize this person even if he has not given his or her consent. That is a raging issue and in, in the United States has been for half a century and I think it is impeding the, the, the progress of, of reducing the pain of the mentally ill. And, and I think it's one of those most convexing issues in our society today because it's one of those things that each time you read an argument, if you really don't have an in-depth knowledge of the topic, you could be swayed. You could listen to the libertarians and say, oh, well, that makes sense. You know, we don't want to medicate people against their, their will or we don't want to incarcerate them against their will. And yet that's only a tiny bit of the story. That's right. That's exactly right. I, 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 God knows, I do not want to make fun of libertarians or anyone else. I have great sympathy for anyone who takes a strong stand on any side of this issue. But the fact is, I think they're wrong. This constitutional argument that we're now talking about uh, arose up in the 1960s um, when a uh, a man rose to great national prominence, an, emig an immigrant psychiatrist named Thomas Zaz, wrote about 50 or 60 books that essentially denied the very existence of mental illness. Zaz believed that it was all a matter of choice and discretion, and if we tried to change that behavior, uh, we were violating the person's civil rights. Uh, that has become an entrenched position. Saz, uh, I think, well, he was, as a young man, he got out of Hungary, out of Budapest, 
right before the beginning of World War II, he grew up between two totalitarian countries, Germany and Russia, who had very active um, uh, ideas about intervening in personal lives. Uh, and I think he, he brought those ideas with him, and I believe they were misapplied in our society, that people still have to wait in hospital beds uh, for days, weeks, and sometimes months before a court order uh, moves through and allows an injection or a sedative to be given. In the meantime, the mind uh, deteriorates further. It's the ultimate, I guess, the ultimate catch-22 situation. And I think there. Anyway, this this hearing. I'm I'm sorry. I am I'm rambling. And you know, no, no, you're not because... rambling at all. Because I think that's a critical issue. And I mean, and that's lucky enough if if they are able to get a bed due to all the confluences right, of circumstances right. that have led now to today with such a lack of care facilities and beds for those that are even the most. Um, mentally ill at the time but something yeah, you said exactly. and I'm, I'm we're gonna in this conversation keep going around and around and reconnecting because it's that kind of topic but i think also this misapplication or reaction in part with those who are are really fighting for for what they believe is the rights of the mentally ill can be a reaction to what you describe in your book in depth to the inhumane and dismal and horrific treatment of mentally ill throughout our history. You know, people being against their will, chained and ridiculed and and treated, you know, worse than animals and yeah. electric shock and lobotomy and forced treatment. Well, let's approach this and, and your ideas are very on target with me, Ellen, very provocative. Let's let's re-engage it by, I'll continue with the story of going to the hearing. Perfect. So the bill, you know, the bill before us was, before the state legislature, was can we um, allow, can we change the law to allow instant uh, intervention in the fate of a psychotic person? Or do we have to continue on respecting this sort of bizarre notion of civil rights, which often end up as the civil right to, to uh, kill yourself or someone else. I went, my wife and I went to that hearing testifying on behalf of intervention because we had seen it in our own family. I firmly believe in medication, although I know there have been many abuses of it in the past. Um, we sat at this table, this hearing table, long mahogany polished table. On one side of it were the legislators in their suits and uh, smart uh, uh, dresses and combed hair. On the other side sat the testifiers, many of whom themselves were schizophrenic uh, in some stage of you know stabilization. These were the real people who had emerged from their invisibility for a while to make a stand on their own behalf. Overalls, uh, long, uncombed hair, beards, the Vermont style, they were earnest, they, were, they had a sense of conviction, they were saying, don't legislate, don't legislate for intervention. I disagreed. I made a statement to that effect. But the more important the more important thing that happened to me that night, Ellie, and to my wife as well, 
is that we walked out of that hearing saying, we have just seen this invisible sub-nation emerge for a little bit. And whether we agree with them or not, it's important for me as a writer to make a witness, to try to tell their story and my son's story and let the reader decide. I wanted so I, I decided, how can I not write this book? How can I, seeing what I've seen, losing what we've lost, and learning what we have learned, how can we let the story go on uh, at, the, at the far edges of our social consciousness? And, and I plunged in, and um, I'm hoping that the message of the book was, is, oh, there's no question, the message is psychotic people have souls, they have identities, they have hopes, they have dreams, they are not to be shunted away as they were seven centuries ago in Bedlam Asylum, beaten so that the devil would escape them, beat the devil out of them, um, tortured, uh, doused in cold water, uh, raped, abused. And this still goes on today in a lot of areas, sad to say, but I, this, is, this is the mission of my book. So let's spend a few minutes talking about what is schizophrenia and what we in science know about it at this point. And maybe we could start with talking about um, the brain and the stages it goes through reshaping and when it becomes most sensitive to disruption in the synaptic pruning process. Yes. As I said, science has discovered that um, schizophrenia uh, is a brain disease. That's a crucially important distinction between depression, anxiety, anger, a feeling of alienation, all of these mood disorders that can be treated with therapy and sort of corrective uh, medications that sedate you. Um, Schizophrenia is passed along in the genes. There have to be something like, my reading has told me there have to be something like a, about 128 flawed genes to coalesce in the brain, in the, cere- in the, uh, the cerebellum, I believe, and create the potential for schizophrenia. But even people who have these, this particular gene cocktail don't always develop the disease, that the environment that we live in plays a very strong factor. If children live with stress, and if adolescents live with, uh, you know, the same thing, anxiety, depression, abuse, these sort of things, the brain starts to try to regulate what is going on, and because of the flawed genes, it over-regulates and the disorder uh, appears and is manifested and never goes away. You s- People don't always draw a distinction. In fact, really, very rarely uh, do lay people draw a distinction between classic chronic schizophrenia and the kinds of um, uh, disorder. You know, the mood disorders that I've been talking about. Adolescents tend to be very moody. They tend to be rebellious. And most of the time, that's normal. But we have to understand that mid-adolescence is the period in life when if schizophrenia is going to kick in in a developing brain, 
that's when it will happen. So I think, um, you know, one good bit of common sense advice is if a parent begins to notice strange behavior, get help. Get a psychiatrist. Get an evaluation, and if necessary, get the meds because early intervention can prohibit, you know, can prevent a lot of deeper damage. But so often we see this this kind of behavior only as uh, something that has to be punished. Well, well, I was going to say there are a lot of loaded elements to provoke terror in that sentence, just because, you know, you say acting differently. And as you go through in the book, when you talk about your experience with with Kevin and with Dean, you know, in hindsight, were they just being grumpy, um, rebellious, typical teenagers, or then in hindsight, something more was going on. And then to, to cart your kids off to a, a therapist, you know, that's loaded as well, especially these days where psychiatrists and psychologists are so quick to label and, and medicate. So it's very understanding what awful position you and other parents are in, yes. being unsure as, as what tack to take. You said um, in reaction to... Um, Dean's experience with the legal system. You said, these were the days and months and events I'm convinced that launched my eldest son into his rendezvous with schizophrenia. And that was a tremendous stress that he was under. And so this seems to be, at this point, schizophrenia, I believe to be a combination of having this genetic disorder and then um, external circumstances that then activate it. Yes. Would you give me a concise digest of what you have just said, and, I, and then I will... I'll, so I'll so I guess it. what I'm asking with this is, it's a, it's a unique, and I guess we'll, for this moment, call it disease or affliction, yes. in that there are these genetic um, elements and physical... Um, physical patterns and abnormalities that are detectable in the brain. And yet not everyone with those will develop it. And there's even some argument or speculation that some of our most creative people, you know, may be just the other side of schizophrenia. And so I want to talk a little bit about the factors that may aggravate it or ignite it. And and let's start with stress. Okay. Well, you know, despite being an awful disease, um, uh, an incredibly destructive affliction, schizophrenia is one of the most frustrating ailments that mankind has ever encountered. It it ranks alongside cancer um, as being mysterious, insoluble, and, uh, and devastating. So, It wasn't until about the 1980s that laser technology and micro, uh, you know, micro MRIs, this kind of imaging that was developed out of the, you know, the computers, enabled scientists to really to actually look inside the brain and see for the first time in history that schizophrenia leaves traces. They call, their word for it is lesions. You can see evidence that the brain has been, uh, in, in microscopic ways, 
damaged and altered by the onset of schizophrenia. But until then, it was only a hypothesis. And because of the absence of physical evidence in the brain or the absence of, you know, an ability to get to it, people like Dr. Saz, who I've mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, were able to be very... Saz was telling people what they wanted to hear. None of us wants to believe that our brains can be transformed. And everyone, I think, to some extent, would like to deny that there's such a thing as mental illness. So people flock to him. And um, because of this manipulation, I think, of public opinion, decades went by before we were able to understand that it's impermissible, it's morally wrong to treat the chronic mentally ill, those who have been victims of their own genes, as criminals or as undesirables or as people who just simply need to be swept away. We're starting to get on to that at a scientific level. But, Ellie, I have to tell you that this, my book has been out for a couple of weeks now. And in those two weeks, um, I have a blog. Uh, it's Ron D. No, I'm sorry, pardon me. It's no one cares about crazypeople.com, all one word.com. And, and on this blog, I have learned more about what's happening at ground zero, at the grassroots of uh, the afflicted and their families than I knew when I was writing the book. Um, People have written to me, mostly mothers. I have discovered um, Facebook sites where people can converse with one another uh, under an honor code that nothing will be um, uh, transmitted out of these sites. My point is that there is such pain out there. There is such bewilderment um, because these people are dealing with a court system that doesn't really know or is too bored or uh, overburdened to care that these uh, that uh, a psychotic person needs special treatment. They see their sons and daughters being uh, rebuffed in terms of the fact that they might need meds or some sort of relief and turned over to the jailer. In that sense, in the sense of of treatment at what I call ground zero, we are still back in the Middle Ages. And one of one of the other goals of my book is to encourage mothers and fathers of afflicted children to tell their stories to the world. And this urgency, this conviction that I feel so much has to do with stigma and overcoming stigma. People are embarrassed at having um, a a mentally ill person in the family. Just as for decades, we were embarrassed to have someone with cancer. They, you know, the obituaries always said so and so died after a long illness. We've gotten over that, but we haven't yet defeated the stigma of schizophrenia. The fact that people will look at our family and say. It must have been awful parents to drive that child crazy. And this goes on and on. Schizophrenia is often misdiagnosed as a drug problem. He's on an overdose, and that's why he's behaving strangely. Well, you know, Ron, you, you mentioned the, yeah. the similarities in your book with cancer. You say this illness shares with cancer its partner in catastrophic affliction and almost otherworldly imperviousness to definitive understanding and cure. 
And yet there is that huge chasm that we have gotten over with with cancer. You know, you can put on a fundraiser for kids with cancer and, and you'll be extremely successful. And yet children who are mentally ill, and I think it's because of something you said in the book that human beings are terrified of this d- disease, and so they try to deny it out of existence. And so by writing your book and putting this out into the open, I think it, it's absolutely, I mean, I applaud you because that is the, the steps that need to be taken to erase the shame and fear and misunderstandings around it. Yes, thank you. And you mentioned, we, we, we were talking about stigma just a minute ago, and let me tell you another goal as I I developed, as I wrote about my children, I didn't want to present them to the world only as victims. I didn't want to show them only in their deterioration, in their uh, bizarre behavior and, and pain. I, Kevin and Dean, were absolutely delightful boys. They were both musically gifted. Our family was close. We had lots of adventures together, and I want the readers, the reader to get acquainted with them in this way. This is not a a story of family dysfunction. It's a story of a happy family that uh, that, that became very unlucky in in the, the genetic rolling of the dice. So and that's so important for people to know. And I wonder if yet again, it makes it even more terrifying. You know, I think with something like this that people don't understand and feel somehow vulnerable to, you know, they want answers. They want it. They want to be able to blame something or someone. Yes, they do. And, and uh, nothing is easier. No one is easier than um, the kinds of unfortunate people we've been talking about because they really can't fight back. People are also afraid of schizophrenics because the myth is that they're violent. As a matter of fact, something like 1% of all of us will develop this disease. It's still far too high, 1 in 100. And among that 1 in 100, very, very few will ever turn violent against uh, society or themselves. Um, the percentage is actually very, very low. But those who do turn violent all often you know, commit extravagant crimes that, that make, make the headlines. So there is so much education that needs to be done uh, to approach the mentally ill through the courts, through police procedure, through the political process with compassion and, uh, you know, the hand of friendship and charity rather than the hand gun or the, um, the sentence to be locked up. So I want to take a short break, and then I want to spend the second half of the show talking about that, about your family's experience and about the state of treatment and care in America um, now. So, well, this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm speaking with author Ron Powers, his most recent book, is No One Cares About Crazy People, The Chaos and Heartbreak of Mental Health in America. And we will be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum, community-supported radio. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. So, Ron, I want to talk a little bit about 
um, your experience as a family. You know, you talk about having been a close family, and I must say, by the end of the book, I was glad to see that that you and and Honoré were still together, and that I know that this kind of um, trauma can tear apart a family, and especially when it hits twice. So. I'm. I was was excited and pleased and happy that that that's that's the fact. You say um, at one point in the book when you had re-enrolled Kevin back into school, we came back home and hoped for the best. We now we now live in a universe of Hobson's choice, and I wondered if you could explain a little bit about what that was like and what you meant by that. I think all families of um, schizophrenic children live in a world of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, you've heard me in the first part of the show, Ellie, advocate for uh, prescription medications. And I firmly believe that. I think it saved the life of our second child. And uh, the refusal to medicate uh, cost our first son his life. But having said that, I also recognize that there have been thousands of bad experiences with misapplied prescriptions. There have been, I I devote most of the chapter in the book to talking about big pharma, the drug companies that uh, since about the 1960s realized that there were, um, there was the big rock candy mountain to be realized from selling drugs. And they were not always scrupulous about the quality of what they sold to the public. There, there were, for instance, terrible side effects could uh, occur if the person's brain didn't match the cocktail of drugs. The companies weren't keen about advertising this. The lawsuits, the out-of-court settlements, you, you can read this in the book, have totaled in the millions, and I think in one or two cases, the billions of dollars the Justice Department has enriched itself through the entirely honorable practice of suing these companies and getting them to take certain products off the market. So, drugs, medications are good, but medications can be bad. There's no formula. Hope for a psychiatrist or a care worker who is sophisticated and professional. Um... The idea, well, that's you know, that's one of the Hobson's choices. If you go public, if a mother or father decide to tell the story of their misfortune in the community, uh, in a book, in a magazine article, uh, they risk or think they risk uh, hostility, anger, ridicule, uh, people taunting um, the afflicted person. I don't think that's as much of a risk as it used to be, but the fear of it is there because down through the centuries, there has been a tradition of making fun of of crazy people. Think of the, just think of the nicknames, lunatics, morons, um, uh, the kinds of, um, you know, in, in London, in the 15th, 16th centuries, Fashionable people would visit Bedlam Asylum on Sundays with their parasols and their carriages, and the wardens would let them in, charging them a penny or two to drive through the grounds, 
and and look at the mad people jump and dance and scream and and romp. So there's been a tendency uh, to make brutal fun of the ill, and that that is still with us. So Hobson's choices, yes, there are many. That that part of the book, I was unsure if I could get through it, but glad I was because it just breaks your heart for humanity that you share this humanity with people that behave in a manner, and then yet you explain it out of the idea of you know fear and misunderstanding and misinformation and and what was going on in the time as well with our scientists, you know, and the idea of survival of the fittest, and so of course yeah. anyone who we deem in, uh, in unfit, you know, we want to push away and, and distance ourselves from. So I want yes. something, you know, let's talk just a little bit more about these antipsychotics and, and the wonder drugs, because that also I thought was a very important um, element of your book that you went into great depth into, because again, a confluence of circumstances as far as how they arose and the timing within our history in which they arose and were therefore um, really embraced at the level that they were. Yes, well, antipsychotics um, burst onto the global scene, I guess, in the 1960s with a drug called Thorazine. And after Thorazine came along and was universally embraced and made the, the drug maker rich beyond all imaginings, other drug companies began to develop um, sort of imitation uh, medications that were a lot like Thorazine, probably in some cases exactly like, that had different names. And this um, unchecked stampede was in full force. Uh, Thorazine had value. It could contain the symptoms of schizophrenia. That's what the drugs do. They, they don't cure the disease. They tamp down the symptoms and allow people a measure of clear thinking and socialization. But um, in this rush, the advertising went unchecked, and I'm sorry to say that even uh, some of the companies, I won't name any names, would actually approach doctors and psychiatrists and offer them incentives to offer the drugs to patients. Sometimes those incentives were out-and-out bribers. This is what began to produce the gigantic lawsuits in the 1970s and 80s. So the drug uh, answer seemed like um, seemed like a, a, almost a heaven-sent uh, end to the centuries of madness, but it, but it wasn't. On the other hand, the drugs can be and often are very useful. You are, Ron, and it's making me think of, of another element of that that I think is important for us to bring out. The idea that it's not a cure, but it's a stabilizer, but that within that it can prevent further psychotic episodes, which can be preventative for going into a deeper level of schizophrenia or psychosis. So, so let's talk about that. And then on the flip side, though, it also can produce this element, and let's talk a little bit about it. I'm not going to say it right. I'm going to say it wrong. But anosinogia, okay. the idea that it's yeah. difficult to keep people, to get people on meds because they often don't think there's anything wrong with them. But even then when they've acknowledged there's something wrong, they are on meds and then they're feeling better and not experiencing psychotic episodes, it's difficult to keep them taking them. 
yes, it's almost like nature has, has decided, well, maybe schizophrenia isn't enough of a curse that, we, that I, Mother Nature, can visit on people, so I'm going to invent a parallel curse. And that curse is going to be such that the victim doesn't know that she is a victim. The scientific name for, for this dynamic is a Greek word called anosognosia. It's a very simple concept, lack of insight. So in 50%, something like 50% of all cases, uh, schizophrenia comes along with a mechanism that tells the person, I'm okay, I'm well, don't give me those pills. Um, and if you do give them to me, I'm not going to take them. I'm going to either throw them away or hide them or something. So this compounds the difficulty of intervening, which is so important. And people in anosognosia tend to deny reality. That's why they're, that's why we call it schizophrenia. And into this mix of disease and denial, on the well-intentioned um, uh, advocates of giving them their constitutional rights and not making them take that. You can see what a galactic catch-22 this is. And um, it, 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 it's such an impediment. I was going to Go say, ahead. I think that also explains, if you look through history, the ping-ponging back and forth of what seems to be the most, most sort of caring or, or righteous reaction as depending on what's believed at the time. You know, you mentioned Parisian um, Philippe Pinel and his his focus on a moral treatment and vitalism. And, and yes, that was an understandable and, and maybe warranted reaction to the dismal treatment, but then again, he didn't have it quite right. And so it ended up not really serving the, the, the extremely mentally ill well. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about, you, you say in the book, something is wrong at the foundations of our society. And I want to talk a little bit about what it is and then where we find the, the hope for that and the direction we go. There were a few moments historically through hope with Dorothea Dix early on saying this has to stop. Um, and then later on with Kennedy trying to build um, out more individualized um, centers for care. And um, we won't talk about the Reagan years, which, which were not a shining light and have caused unbelievable um, harm as far as the situation we're in now. So maybe because we don't have that much time left, let's jump to the situation we are in now where jails have really become, as you say, jails have become the country's largest de facto mental yes. institutions. Yes. And that they well, unwittingly are making those people in the institution situation and then society's much, much worse. Yes. Um, there's something called the law of unintended consequences. It lives in the sub-universe of schizophrenia. It seems that everything we try to do right uh, runs the risk of having an adverse effect. Uh, exhibit A, 1963, September, actually October, Halloween Day, President John F. Kennedy signs a bill that will enable um, that will enable Congress to allow large mental institutions, the big asylums, 
to open their doors and release the hundreds of thousands of patients who are in there with the hope and belief that these people will find their way to smaller uh, community centers where they will be cared for as individuals. Now, there's no question that the big asylum, here's another Hobson's choice, that the, the big asylums were often wretched. They, they were dirty and filthy and indifferent to care. The guards enjoyed beating up on the prisoners. They certainly were far from ideal places. So these tens of thousands of people were let go, maybe given a, a jolt or two of Thorazine to keep them uh, stable. The Thorazine wears off. The, the care centers that President Kennedy had anticipated are not fully built because the Vietnam War has kicked in and drained government revenues into the war effort and away from constructing the safe haven that the mentally ill were expecting. So instead of the care centers, some of them get treatment, many of them go back home to families, many others wander the streets. And this is the genesis of the great problem that, that has bedeviled us ever since, the homeless. Um, so many of the homeless continue to be chronically mentally ill. And the, the, you know, the quick remedy for uh, um, a troublesome person on the street is to arrest them or shoot them dead if they're looking menacing, arrest them, take them through the courts, and sentence them to jail. Our jails and prisons, Ellie, are now the largest de facto mental hospitals in the country. More than half of the prison population um, are incarcerated um, sick people, chronically sick. Uh, we, uh, you know, it, it, and, and another irony, I mean, is that it costs more, a lot more, to incarcerate someone than to treat them by a factor of something like five to ten. Um, but society doesn't really Which, which is a that. huge factor. I mean, five to ten times the amount. Yes. Um, and, and so, too, let's talk about a little bit about why jails couldn't be a worse place for someone with mental illness. Oh, that's uh, that's that's the nub of of the agony. There are a lot of nubs of agony in this whole discussion, and we we are just barely touching them. Would you say that again, Elias? So I sorry. was just saying there, there it is a nub, and there are so many nubs of irony that it, and we are barely just touching them. It, it just is, is heartbreaking. But, it's but true. so, it's, uh... but, but information is power, and so I think people really need to understand why jails couldn't be a worse place for the mentally ill. Jails are terrible for the mentally ill because they are repositories for cruelty. They are repositories of ignorance on the part of wardens and the uh, the jailkeepers who wander the corridors. Um, it, inmates are not protected from assaults by other inmates. Uh, people who act strangely are favorite targets for beatings and harassment and ridicule. One of the favorite uh, handy remedies on the part of the warden 
when someone is misbehaving is to throw them into solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is the worst thing you could do almost to anybody, sane or insane, because we are social animals. We need contact. When deprived of that contact, the psychosis deepens. The tendency towards suicide deepens. The meds are out of reach, and a human being slowly deteriorates into an animal. So, and, and, there, and there's no hope. There's no hope you, for, for getting out of jail because uh, you really seldom have a lawyer. You seldom have access to stabilizing medications. Uh, the criminalization of the insane is one of the great sins of American society. Well, and even just in the structure itself, you're putting people who are, are mentally ill into an environment that's crowded, not good, into an environment that's lit very well most of the time, not good, into an environment that's cold, into an environment where they're not getting great food, they're not getting treatment, it's noisy, it's stressful. Yeah. I mean, I can't. It, there, there couldn't be sort of a worse cocktail. Well... I talked earlier, Ellie, in the first segment about the, 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 the mothers that I've come into contact, the voices I've heard through um, emails and Facebook postings, these voices of frustration and pain. As, uh, and oddly enough, I don't know whether this is worth pursuing, but it's almost always the mother who stands up, the mother who speaks out, the mother who tries to intervene. Maybe mothers are simply uh, genetically predisposed to be more protective animals. At any rate, they somehow manage to bring their, their psychotic child to a center for treatment. The caregiver says, oh, drug overdose. Maybe we should take him to court. The judge who is overburdened with all kinds of cases and pretty disinterested assigns a jail sentence. This pattern repeats itself again and again and again. And um, there, there seems to be, I mean, the question of bureaucratic indifference, bureaucratic fatigue almost, is another great force for worsening the plight of the mentally ill. And do you think there's an element of societal fatigue? I mean, I, I don't think it's indifference, maybe fear and fatigue in explaining the reaction, because I know recently reading stories about Rikers, and also every time I hear the word solitary confinement and the level to which we're using it, I go back and think, wait a minute, what, what happened in the 70s? Didn't we get rid of solitary confinement? Didn't we pretty much decide that that was cruel and unusual punishment? What do you mean we're using it and we're using it regularly and this you know well, what about and, and what about Rikers don't we already have films made about this that we've all seen about what happened at Alcatraz and how that was inhumane and unacceptable and yet here it goes on our our watch continuing w just as it had yes well we didn't get rid of solitary confinement in the 70s there may have been laws against it that they they are honored in the breach uh, it's not just Rikers which by the way is a holding area for people who have not been convicted of a crime. They have been charged. 15,000 young inmates in there because, for the most part, they have only been charged with a crime. Their families are too poor to put up bail, so they're penned there like 
animals and they are treated like animals and psychosis deepens and results. But solitary confinement, another, you know, this is a case for education. We must educate our political leaders about what are the, what are the stakes of mistreating the mentally ill. There was a story several weeks ago, uh, a quote from Governor Christie of New Jersey, who was asked about uh, the, pers- the, the casual use of solitary as the way to solve a problem in a jail. And Christie said, solitary doesn't bother me. It works. Uh, What's the problem? And went on to something else. Well, as I just said, solitary is a brutal form of psychological torture. And um, yes, and it goes on and on and on. And I would say pretty much uncontroverted. So I don't know if he's living again in this new world of ours of, of alternative facts, but it's pretty much factually based that it can drive a sane person insane and, and fairly quickly. Uh, yes, it is. It, it, it is a fact. It is a fact, and it, it is often ignored because another one of the great um, uh, injustices. Well, let me let me start that again. Um, state restate the question. I'm so sorry. Well, I, I was just making a statement. I will state a question, but it's one of these topics that I knew it would be that I just cannot keep quiet because the knife sort of goes deeper at, at every new realization. You know, when you mention about Rikers, that not only is all this happening, but it's happening to people who have not been convicted of a crime. And again, right. the Constitution waves and <laughs> wildly in front of me saying, wait a minute, isn't, isn't this unconstitutional? Which does bring me to a question. And and I want to head in our last few minutes on this direction as to what is constructive care. And I want to talk a little bit about Federal District Court Judge Lawrence K. Carlton's 2014 order that current practices are unconstitutional. And maybe in these last few minutes we can talk about successful care. And maybe in, in Dean's case, you know, the key points that really did allow this to be a successful um, at least, you know, resolution to a degree to allowing him to be living a, a fruitful life. And maybe we can start sure. with, with um, where he found care. Where, where Dean found care. Where Dean found care. Yes. Well, a few years after Kevin's death, um, the second catastrophe hit our family, and our older son, Dean, began to show uh, very disturbing symptoms of of hostility, withdrawal, and uh, not physical aggression, but he became a, a very difficult young man to live with. And it was a little while before we were able to bring ourselves to confront the fact that it was happening again. Dean was becoming uh, schizophrenic and on the road to psychosis. Uh, he did experience a couple of psychotic breaks in which he did what so many psychotic people do. He ran around the neighborhood knocking on doors, announcing he was the Messiah. And people started calling the police. In fact, when we realized what Dean was doing, we called the police ourselves. We were lucky. We were very lucky. At the bottom of the hill where we live in uh, rural Vermont, uh, a policeman was waiting for Dean when he came running down the hill. In a lot of urban centers, a lot of areas of this country, 
This confrontation could have ended in a shooting, and Dean would be lying face down on the pavement. Well, well there's the ultimate Hobson's choice that you had to make right there, right? Whether yeah, or not to that, call the police. Yes. This man subdued Dean without violence, got him to the regional hospital in our area, where an enlightened chief of psychiatry, the psychiatric wing, realized that what Dean, that he could use a sort of carrot and stick approach to Dean. Dean had been hospitalized a couple of times before, and he absolutely hated it. Most young men do, most people. He didn't want to go back. The psychiatrist said, I will make a deal with you. If you will commit yourself to showing up at our clinic once a month and getting an injection of a medication, and the name of the med was Haldol, it worked for Dean. If you will do that and be accountable for renewing the med, I won't put you back at the hospital. Well, that worked for Dean. It has worked for him ever since. For the last year and a half, Dean has been on an upswing and uh, has recovered a lot of his, his charm, his intelligence, his curiosity, his interest in playing guitar. So, in a way, our two sons demonstrated a wide range of a whole spectrum of psychiatric, you know, of psychotic symptoms uh, and uh, and remedies. Kevin was artistic, incredibly so. And there's a strain of thought that says artists and psychotics think a lot alike. They both uh, both modes are about jumping over boundaries, of making connections that most people don't see, of forming metaphors and analogies and creating new things. You know, music is something that you create literally out of thin air. Kevin was very good at that. If the imbalance is working in the brain or working against the individual, this can spill over just like stress can spill over and take the brain in a psychic psychotic direction. So Kevin was a victim of his own artistry, and uh, Dean was the victim of uh, stress in his environment, and um, they both paid the price. And so Dean's doctor, you say enlightened, but also extremely um, patient and dedicated and, and talented in that he took the time to figure out what would work for Dean, what might entice him, um, found a cocktail, a medication cocktail that worked for Dean because that's another huge problem and challenge to be able to find the level and the right medication that that can actually help and help long term with with this illness. And then a combination of medication and talking cure, which seems to be at least this point in history the most um, effective manner with which to treat schizophrenia. That's right. And I think, Ellie, that signals a hopeful direction in the way we're starting to understand and treat the mentally ill. For years, uh, there was incarceration. I mean, I'm talking centuries of sweeping them away into the darkness. And then in the 1960s, with the advent of what were called miracle drugs, uh, the ship tilted to the other side, and psychiatrists and, and doctors began saying, let's dose them up and they'll be just fine. Turns out they weren't just fine in many cases. What's happening now? 
is an enlightened conflation of a fusing of of correctly prescribed meditations by a psychiatrist who understands, and often this involves some experimentation of uh, of what we're calling the cocktail, that and the creation of local community centers staffed by professionals that, that reinforced by just simply good people in the community who, who care. In these centers, uh, psychotic people can reclaim a sense of being loved because they're valued again. They can be given tasks that are meaningful and that they can understand as meaningful. They can be of use, which I believe every human being wants to be at heart. And it, it's, it's painstaking. It requires commitment and it requires some money. Not as much money as jail, but it, it requires an investment. But I think if we can uh, awaken towns, uh, regions, communities in our country to the idea that this works, it will work and it will prove fulfilling not only to the mentally ill, but to the people who are caring for them. And maybe that's where the solution to many of our problems are these days in our localities. You know, we can circumvent the argument to whether or not it's the federal government's or the state government's responsibility and their capacity to solve the problem and start directly from our families to the communities to our localities. I want to just end with something you wrote in your book. You say, there are no cures for mental illness exist, but the quicker and more accurately the early symptoms are noticed and treated, the better prospects for minimizing the effects. The larger point in writing this, then, is to arm other families with a sense of urgency that perhaps came to us too late. Act quickly and keep acting. And I think now you've given them and all of us some guidance on how how to act and where we can best act. Yes. Ellie, sum it up for me. I'm so sorry. And I'll respond. I'm sorry. You quoted from the book? I quoted from your book in, in when you explained the reason, the larger point in writing your book, that it was to arm families with a sense of urgency okay. that perhaps came too late to you to act quickly and keep acting. And I say we are all grateful to you in writing this book and coming on the show because I think you've now given people knowledge as to when and how to act and where the solution lies, steps to go forward. And I think that's the biggest thing in encouraging people to open their eyes and look directly at a problem rather than turn away. Good. Thank you for that, Ellie. This is not a how-to book, and it's not a book with a happy ending, and it's not a book of prescriptions, but it is a book of let's join hands and make common cause. It's a book of exhortation. It's a it's a reminder that mentally ill people are not demons. They're not, uh, they're not monsters. They have potential. And I think it strengthens the moral fiber of our towns and our communities and our society if we learn to understand these most helpless and deranged people among us. Because in learning how to help them and how to restore them, we are learning how to help and restore ourselves. And I think in, in that sense, uh, the, the mission of caring for the um, what I call the crazy people, ironically, is one of the most important missions we can undertake and one of the most healing 
missions for all of us that we can undertake in this society. Well, and it's a gift to all of the individuals, us as individuals as well, right, as to f helping us to find our humanity. How in any uncomfortable situation when someone else is hurting, can we reach towards rather than pull away? Right. Well, Mr. Powers, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. I will say you definitely got me thinking and hopefully many, many, many more. It's a great pleasure to talk with you, Ellie. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum, listener-supported radio. Thank you so much, Ron. Ah, thank you so much. One thing we didn't touch on, and maybe it's not necessary, is the meaning of the title. Ah, and, and I meant to. So let's maybe go back and talk a little okay. bit about that. Um, so, all right. So we'll go back to that. We mentioned it at the very beginning of the show, um, at least my reaction to the title of the book and whether it was that, that no one cares or that it's such an overwhelming and frightening prospect that people turn away. Where did the title of the book come from? Oh, thank you for asking. That that is a is an is a massively important question because the title is easy to misunderstand. While I was researching my book, No One Cares About Crazy People, uh, around 2010, uh, Milwaukee County Hospital was on, was in the midst of a scandal. The psychiatric wing uh, had been investigated by a newspaper, and the results were beatings of patients, rapes of patients, at least one suicide, and uh, a general uh, climate of chaos and, and viciousness. At that time, the county commissioner, whose name was Scott Walker, was setting his sights on the governorship, which he eventually won. The last thing that Scott Walker needed was a scandal to tarnish his reputation. So his loyal associates began to try to cover the scandal up and to minimize the damage. One of them, an administrative aide named Kelly Rinflesh, wrote a memo that was eventually subpoenaed, and she, uh, and she was uh, charged, I think, with a felony for using uh, company time to do private campaigning. But she wrote a memo to her colleagues trying to assure them that there's no big problem here. Let's not worry too much about it because, in her words, no one cares about crazy people. I saw that sentence online one morning, and I swear to you, the world in front of me went red. I was infuriated. It took a while to clear my head of what I had just seen and to comprehend that it was written by a human being. And I said, that's my title. And it was not only the title of the book, it was The Necessary Irritant that a writer needs to persevere through the long, arduous process of researching and writing and soul-searching a book as difficult as this. But I, I could never let that phrase, no one cares about crazy people, go unchallenged. And why did it make you so mad? The arrogance, the indifference, the sense that our boss's political future is more important than justice, uh, being assembled to protect the most helpless, abject members of society. They're crazy people. Let's lock them up and forget about them. 
That's what got me. And do you think people do care about crazy people? Because, of course, when you first read it, you, you think, well, you know, do, do they? Of course they do or don't they? And so I'm just wondering yeah. what your reaction was to that element of it. Some people do care. And uh, sadly enough, it often takes the experience of dealing with a mentally ill person in your family. Many of the great advocates for mental health, E. Fuller Torrey, whose treatment advocacy center has been in the forefront of challenging bad laws and uh, dismantling bad superstitions and myths. Fuller Torrey has a close relative who with schizophrenia, as do many of the other writers of important books. Uh, so it's amazing what this personal contact can do to activate your compassion. So I think that it really, instead of turning away from the mentally ill, we should be more exposed to them. We should have more contact, more conversations, and we would realize what a great moral challenge the reform of mental health care really is for us. Well, thank you so much. I wanted to, in this um, end of the show, to just maybe put out again the website that you have and some of the organizations that people can turn to as well, um, NAMI, and maybe if you might mention some of the other ones that you found online. Sure. Uh, my blog, uh, my online blog, is no one cares about crazypeople.com. It's a long, awkward name. But there's, there's really a lot of riches in it because I reprint a lot of news stories uh, that deal with uh, outrages and, and bad policy. I also have photographs of Dean and Kevin, and I have their music. They made wonderful music together, and you can find it on my blog. Uh, people should consider turning to NAMI, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They have chapters in virtually every city in the country. They have helpful ideas. They have good uh, uh, outreach formulas for, for repairing the damage and intervening in a crisis. Um, there are, if people can go to Facebook and they can find uh, websites like the Circle of, um, Circle of Care and Assistance is one. You have to be invited into these sites, but if you know someone who can sponsor you, you can join the conversation uh, among people who know this subject the best, the mothers and fathers. Uh, All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I can't wait to hear the finished product.